Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and we also have James Chappell down the line from Berenberg. In New York, our US banking editor, Ben McClanahan, has been talking to Douglas Merrill, who's the CEO of Zest Finance. This week, we'll be discussing the latest news from Credit Suisse as it announces uh, full-year results for 2016. Also a look at the UK's cooperative bank as it struggles to survive under its current ownership. And finally, we have that interview in New York where Ben has been talking to Zest Finance about how they deal with people with patchy credit histories. First, let's turn to Credit Suisse because they've had full year results out this morning, Laura. And um, it's fair to say it's a mixed bag. Yeah, in terms of operational performance, it was a pretty mixed bag. I mean, they lost about $1.9 billion in the fourth quarter. That's better than the $6.4 billion they lost a year earlier, but it's still obviously losing more money. That was largely because of the fine that they had to pay to the US to settle these those or MBS cases. They had to pay $5.3 billion, and all of that had to set aside an, an additional $2 billion. In terms of the operating businesses, there were some very strong performances. So their investment banking franchise had its best quarter since um, 2012. They also did very well for the international wealth management business, which is good news because that's a really big strategic part for them going forward. Unfortunately, the Asian business performed fairly poorly. They also had some issues in the global markets business, which has been a chronic underperformer. Now, they keep on saying they have taken steps to basically improve that, but we're not really seeing too much evidence of that yet. Overall, costs were also very good. I mean, they said that they got 1.9 billion savings last year. They had only targeted above 1.4, so they're obviously very happy with that. So the outlook is pretty mixed. But the big news, I guess, was that they managed to boost their capital ratios by more than people expected. They returned a common equity tier one ratio, which is one of the major key figures people look at for this. They got 11.6%. Analysts only expected 11.1%. That's a fairly big uplift. The main reason for them doing that was actually because they managed to sell off their non-core assets faster than they had expected to. But still, any progress around capital is always going to be welcome in a bank like this, where people are very concerned about the prospect of having to raise capital in the future because Credit Suisse, even at that, 11.6 is still one of the more thinly capitalised global banks out there. Okay, well, uh, let's get the analysts' view now. We're joined by James Chappell from Berenberg. James, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. What's your summary view of what you heard today? I think I'd echo some of what Laura said. I think on the, the core business, that's X, the uh, the bits they're trying to run off, that looked to be about 7% below what analysts were expecting. Uh, but if you look at the group as a whole, the non-call runoff was a little bit better than expected. So on a headline basis, I think people saw them as slightly ahead. Um, as Laura said, I think one of the positives was obviously capital. That had been a concern, I think, going into numbers. Some had you know, maybe even expected a bit of a capital raise. And I think the other thing that's obviously lifted the shares today has been the 
positive start to January that management's flagged with um, some of the credit businesses up about 100% year on year in January. Um, and also some of the advisory businesses up about 90%. So uh, people looking to get exposed to that, um, considering the positive sentiment around the US, and hence why, as we speak, the shares are up about 3%. What about the balance of business? Because Tijantiam, the uh, the chief executive, is known for his Asian credentials. He made a big play of refocusing CS on Asia when he came in as CEO. And yet this is a part of the group that seems to have disappointed maybe more than most. Actually, a lot of the growth is elsewhere in the world, particularly in the US these days on the wealth management side. Is his strategic view out of kilter with the realities of today? I mean, I think it's a difficult balance between certainly short-term sentiment and the positive noises emanating out of the US in terms of deregulation and all that's going on there against you know, longer-term trends that would support the view that the one area of growth you'd see in financial services is really around asset management, or what, well, particularly wealth management and, and, and Asia in particular. And it's quite interesting in some of their, you know, while Asian numbers were disappointing relative to sort of expectations, I think that what you've seen is CS is now splitting out a separate line item that they call sort of wealth management and connected activities in Asia, really much trying to emphasize the strength of that business and how, you know, if you looked at 2016 on 2015, that business had grown significantly year on year. So I think what was interesting with the presentation was obviously a lot of it was focused on that wealth side of the business. And then only latterly did management come back to look at the the markets business. So I think the focus very much remains long term for CS on that wealth business with um, the positive market sentiment at the moment supportive for the shares in the short term and only time will tell whether it was the, the right pivot that um, the, the CEO decided to do with this sort of focus on Asia and growth within the international wealth management business. Final thought from you on capital, if I could, particularly this idea of the Swiss ring-fenced business potentially being uh, a generator of capital through a listing. This was the plan announced uh, quite some time ago. There seems to have been a delay. Possibly the idea might be ditched altogether of, of listing 25% of this business. What's your view on that? And um, what are the alternatives in terms of raising capital if indeed they still need to do that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think capital will still remain a debate for Credit Suisse. Um, it was interesting today on the call that they flagged that um, CET1 this year is likely to be 11 to 12%. Um, you know, and as Laura said earlier, 11.6 was the end point, which suggests, you know, they're not going to generate much capital this year. And, you know, originally they let it, laid out a plan to raise, you know, that they needed potentially 9 to 11 billion of capital, of which partly capital raised, partly asset sale, and the final part was the Swiss IPO that was aiming to raise two to four billion. Now, I think uh, today, I think the CEO has given, has left himself with all options. And I think the major uncertainty for CS as we sit here today is obviously around Basel IV, um, how that will be implemented and how that might impact the business. Um, And I think that um, in time, once you split businesses out, regulators often ask for the businesses that get split out to have more capital than perhaps is required at IPO um, when ING and NN split up. NN ended up with more capital in perhaps than it needed and quite soon afterwards started buying back shares. So I think what CS has done today is very much leave all options open, be it a capital raise, um, a Swiss IPO, or even if you know the regulatory environment turns out favorably, not even disposing of it at all. So 
Um, but from our perspective, I think we would um, expect to see either a capital raise or a Swiss IPO, as I think that, as Laura's flagged earlier, that CS tends to lag um, peers in terms of capital. So um, I think shareholders would like them to see them catch up in terms of that in order that they can restart um, or, or increase capital return going forwards. Well, certainly one to watch alongside a few other European banks that may be raising capital. Well, Unicredit we know currently, Deutsche, lots of speculation about uh, another one to watch there. Uh, many thanks, James, for joining us from Berenberg. Well, let's move on to talk about the UK's Cooperative Bank. It's the latest chapter in a long-running saga, really, about the troubles that have befallen co-op, once seen as a kind of beacon in terms of ethical banking practices. A few years ago, there was a crisis of confidence over its financial strength, over the slightly scandalous behaviour of its then-chairman, and now it's back in the news because it's looking for a new owner. Basically, its current ownership can't stump up the capital it needs. What is going to happen to the co-op? Good question. The bank needs more capital, and that became patently clear to everyone since it announced a couple of weeks ago that it would miss its own minimum capital target that it agreed with the Bank of England a couple of years ago when it failed the Bank of England stress test. And since that time, a couple of years ago, it has been under regulatory forbearance, which means it didn't have to be subjected to the stress test. It didn't have to meet all the capital, full capital requirements, but it couldn't even meet the minimum requirements. It set itself as part of this plan with the regulator. So the the pressure has been intense on this bank for the past couple of years. It's got IT problems. Um, The regulator has been quite critical of its IT systems, its inability to assess risk and to calculate its positions and look at risk. It's got a pension problem, and that dates back to when it was part of the cooperative group, very generous pensions that its staff have, and how does it deal with the pension deficit. And it's also got a problem of, as all British banks have, of persistently low interest rates and lower than expected interest rates after they were cut last year following the Brexit vote. And of course, it's still loss-making. All of that adds up to a loss-making bank. And add in conduct charges for um, mainly for payment protection insurance, mis-selling compensation, which um, it, it has had to pay out quite a bit of money for that as well. So you add all that together, you've got a small loss-making bank that has not got enough capital. And it's got two main types of owner. One is its former parent, the cooperative group, which has got problems of its own, doesn't have the money to put in. It's only got a 20% stake left in the co-op bank. And the other types of owners are mainly US hedge funds who either put new money in or, in most cases, also converted some of their debt into equity to give them an 80% stake. It's not listed. And so now it's all come to a head. The bank announced this week that it's putting itself up for sale. So who and wants... this is presumably because current shareholders won't put any more money up to, to raise capital. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're US hedge funds. They're in it, not in it for kind of long-term sustainable reasons, presumably. They've, they've been in there partly, as you say, because they got converted from being bondholders. Yeah, and I just don't think that the existing set of shareholders, for a variety of reasons, 
are willing to fill the capital hole, which some people estimate could be as big as £1 billion in this bank. So you need to explore all options. But I think the way this is heading is not going to be a classic uh, takeover of one bank by another, at least at this stage, because, as I say, there is a big capital shortfall. And what I think is going to have to happen is some either voluntary or enforced by the regulator swap of the junior debt of this bank into equity or even wiping them out and then selling the assets, the remaining assets, um, the good assets onto a new owner. And again, that will either happen voluntarily or uh, the regulator could step in and enforce a wipeout of, of junior bonds, a bail-in, as they call it, of junior bonds and also could even, in extreme circumstances, enforce its powers to transfer assets and liabilities from the bank, so the good assets and the good liabilities from the bank to a new owner, leaving the non-performing loans in a runoff vehicle, which the creditors would get whatever is recovered from that, which is which is pretty desperate. But I think this is all patently clear to the market already. The junior bonds are trading at less than half their par value. Even the senior bonds have come down to 90% of par value. So this is a pretty difficult situation. They need to explore all options. They're hoping they'll get some kind of miracle bid from a rival bank to buy the co-op bank. And just finally, what this, as you said, is an, is an ethically focused bank. It's the only one that has this ethical mandate to not invest in certain types of, of companies. And the question will be whether that ethical focus is maintained under a new owner. Uh, can it be maintained? Can the brand, the co-op brand, be maintained if the cooperative group no longer has any ownership in it? Pretty ironic, of course, if the co-op finds itself being broken up and closed down, that this, as you say, is the only ethical bank in Britain at a time when the banking industry as a whole could do with reinventing itself more along ethical lines. But we'll chart this story as it progresses. Thank you, Martin. Now let's go to New York, where, as I said, Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, has been talking to Douglas Merrill of Zest Finance, which is a a financially focused software company based in Los Angeles. Ben started by asking uh, Douglas, how, if you are lending to people with patchy credit records, how do you judge their credit worthiness? So traditionally, underwriting has used five to ten, maybe 20 pieces of information. Uh, and they're very standard, and they must always be present and always be correct. Many of them make total sense. For example, the ratio of payment to outstanding income makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But for many people, so-called thin files, who are often millennials in the United States, many of those few values don't exist. But lots of other values do. The credit files themselves, even from the big three bureaus, are hundreds of items long. And the alternative bureaus, like LexisNexis, are thousands of items long. Some of them are true for almost everyone. So the kinds of models that our clients build are able to gracefully degrade when they're missing data. That is to say, if a piece of data is missing, instead of breaking silently, as traditional underwriting would, there's ways to guess what that data should have been, and as a result, make a score which is predictive, even though bits and pieces are missing here and there. And that's different from traditional models, where if there is a a cell that's blank, then something goes wrong. You get an unstable score with traditional models if a cell is blank, and there's lots of ways that they try to work around it. But you know, it's different horses for different courses. Traditional underwriting fails badly in the presence of missing data. In contrast, the models that one builds in XAML in our product are much more amenable to lots and lots of bumps. What's XAML? 
XAML is the platform that my company builds to help financial institutions make loans by scoring hard-to-score people like thin filer millennials. And you're supplying that to lots and lots of credit card companies? We're supplying it to at least two of the top five credit card companies, one of the big three auto manufacturers, a whole bunch of credit unions, and several companies in China. But what are the metrics are you looking for for people without long histories of uh, credit? Well, rather than answering your question, let me give you a story of my wife, Sonia. My wife grew up in Alaska, didn't have any money. And so from the day that she could, she was out trying to get money. So she babysat, she picked up cans by the side of the road, she sold uh, paintings to tourists, and she, like whatever she could do. And uh, she had a savings account at Seattle First Bank, Seafirst. She basically opened that when she was roughly 14. So keep going across from 14 all the way up through college. She's working really hard. She's putting as much money as she has. She's a roofer during one summer. And if you saw her, you'd be amazed by that. Turns 22, graduates from college. She's going to her first job, a PR company in Portland. And she goes to Seafirst and says, I need a credit card. Can I have one, please? They say, no, you have no credit history. Hmm. Hard to know how to answer that. That's correct. She had no credit history. On the other hand, they have like seven years of history with her of increasing deposit. You've got to believe that there's a willingness and ability to repay metric in there somewhere. So we try to avoid the traditional measures of credit. When they're present, they're great. They're very powerful. But when they're not present, what we try to do is use um, kind of alternative behavioral data or alternative credit data. So for example, in one XAML model tracks the case of your name when you key it into the website. Turns out that if you key it in an all uppercase, you are materially higher risk than if you key it in normal case. It's kind of an odd fact. It's a fact. But the important part is that it's possible to, using hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of signals, Mm -hmm. make a much more 360-degree view of you as a human than the 5, 10, 20 that a traditional credit score uses. Um, what, What does this data tell us about the state of the American consumer right now? As a software provider, we see a lot of different kinds of credit, and it seems pretty clear from where we are that the credit market is beginning to grow, Mm -hmm. which is great. Uh, In 2008, there was a massive flight to quality, which left a large percentage of Americans, perhaps as much as 40% of all Americans, uh, with a dearth of credit. And credit is a sine qua non of modern life. Mm -hmm. Without credit, you can't really keep your life together through demand shocks. So we're very excited to see that credit is beginning to grow again, particularly into thin-file and no-file populations. And how's the quality of that credit holding up? Because as you reach down the spectrum, the the assumption is that uh, losses begin to pile up. Has that been the case? The farther down the credit spectrum you go, the higher the losses is. That's largely speaking a truism. Every now and again, you'll find someone who has a pretty low credit score who doesn't deserve to. And and part of the models that we help our clients build are designed to go find those people, to go find a, a low FICA who's actually a prime. And there's lots of reasons why that exists. But ultimately, what you said is is true. You go down the spectrum losses grow, which is why, in my opinion, we should be tracking not defaults, but rather returns. Because ultimately, I don't mind if you default if you paid back your loan, right? I mind if you default if you paid back one payment. So it's a different view of what credit losses should look like. Let's finish on Donald Trump, where most things (laughs) begin and end these days. Uh, He's talked a lot about relaxing uh, regulations on on the big banks in particular. Uh, would it make a difference uh, to your business, to your ability to you know, sell more software to, to people supplying credit to thin-file people if the big banks had a gentler environment? So it is likely to be the case that if big banks are able to make more loans facing higher risk, that they'll need support to do so, because 2008 did in fact happen. We are the primary provider of software that would give them that help. So you know, at a high level, it might be helpful for us. But the real question is, is it the right social policy? If you look, just go back to, you know, Ricardian economics and you look at structures of contracts 
anytime one side of the contract has, has all the power and can make the terms opaque to the other side, that market will never clear. There will never be a fair price because there will always be economic rents accruing to the power and opacity. That's why regulators exist. They exist to try and remove that bad mix of inferences. So it's clear that we need in financial services, we need regulators. The question is just what the right structure of regulation is. You can find often a lot of fintech CEOs who are kind of decry the existence of the current regulation. I'm not one of those. I think all the regulators that I have dealt with have been thoughtful and well-intentioned and so intelligent. It didn't swing too far under the Obama administration? You I mean, from my perspective, for what it's worth, no. But there's lots of people... Lots of smart people think all sides of that issue. What I'm excited about is the fact that we're having a social conversation. We're having a, a broader conversation about how do we want the fact that this market doesn't clear to be fixed. So that's exciting to me. Douglas Merrill, thank you. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio. Our guest down the line from Berenberg, James Chappell. And in New York, Ben McClanahan and his guest, uh, Douglas Merrill from Zest Finance. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Martin Staber, David Blood and Lauren Leatherby. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.